Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to a very special edition of IndieWire's podcast, Green Talk. We're gearing up for 4th of July weekend. I'm your co-host, Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and senior editor of IndieWire, and I'm joined by my co-host out in Los Angeles, but not for very long, Ann Thompson. How's it going, Ann? I'm good. I'm good. About to ship off to shinier uh, places. I'm going to go to the Carl Vivari Film Festival in the Czech Republic, which is basically in the town once known as uh, Carlsbad, the resort town. You, you, you associate it with rich aristocrats on vacation at the, at the springs, you know. It's <laughs> a perfect way to celebrate Independence Day, of course. So before we get into talking about some of the movies that people can check out over the course of this long weekend, we should probably turn to one of the sad, sadder developments, which is the passing of Paul Mazursky. Do you want to uh, reflect on that a little bit, Anne? Well, I was lucky enough to, um, a friend of mine was good friends with him and invited me to join uh, an annual dinner that took place once a year around Oscar time when a couple of people were all in town. And it was just a joy to be, I looked forward to it every year, because Paul would, of course, be holding forth and talking about, you know, either his old movies or talking about what it was like to meet Fellini or, or you know, what it was like to work with Stanley Kubrick or whatever. And thanks to that friendship, eventually I did an interview with him and I put that up on the on the on the blog um that was very very sad to see to see him go um and and but he i think he's an underappreciated filmmaker who was part of a specific era of the so he was a writer director in the 70s and 80s he the, he was inside the studio system but we would probably consider him an independent now and he he showed uh, a, a lot of characters a lot of relationships a lot of marriages a lot of uh, you know, unmarried woman with Jill Claber, she won an Oscar. Uh, Harry and Tonto with Art Carney, he was nominated. Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, you know, very funny, very perceptive, very much of their time. And he was, he, he had a long run all the way up through down and out in Beverly Hills. And, and I just think uh, was a remarkably uh, brilliant filmmaker and chronicler of, of our times. And uh, I, I just wanted to recognize that. And of course, he was somebody who was able to make these movies in the context of what we consider to be Hollywood, which is a very different terrain right now and something worth bringing into the conversation as well. Well, it was before the suits came in, really. It was a, it was a period where you could have a head of, of, of a studio who could just green light something, and the, st- the budgets were not nearly as high as they are today. Um, you know, he ran into more trouble getting his stuff made at the end of his career, uh, obviously, as happens to everyone. Right. It's uh, too bad he didn't uh, stick around to direct Tammy. 
Stop it. <laughs> I just was trying to find a way to end that. But <laughs> so listen, it's Independence Day. We tend to think, uh, since we cover the world of independent film, that that might be something you'd call every day. But there's something really particular that we want to talk about this week, which involves the, the sort of independent elements of two new releases. Now, first of all, there's this movie, Tammy. Uh, Melissa McCarthy stars, and it's not the kind of traditional female-driven comedy that you see. Uh, I don't know if that really makes it a good movie, but it certainly does make it go against the grain. What do you think? I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure I agree with you. Uh, I think it's an independent film only in the sense that um, the, the, the filmmakers are actually this you know, incredibly successful movie star now against all expectation going back a few years ago before Bridesmaids, where studios would relegate a Melissa McCarthy to a character supporting role as she was in Bridesmaids. But she has proven to be a huge box office star from from the heat, which she did share with, with Sandra Bullock, who was a huge star in her own right, and the way that the two of them played off each other was was extremely effective. But also, I think that this movie was the promise of Melissa McCarthy unleashed or unfettered or unrestrained by the rules of Hollywood engagement. And, and unfortunately, to my mind, she and her husband, Ben Falcone, who directed it and, and they wrote it together, you know, it doesn't really qualify to me as what we would consider an independent film. Somebody suggested that it should go to, to Sundance or something. This is a very mainstream, safe, not um, particularly uh, genre-bending. Well, uh, here's the thing. It, it, it doesn't bend genres, but it does bend expectations in kind of strange ways. I mean, it, it feels like a broad comedy until these strange, smaller moments or kookier moments when it's something else, when it feels like it's trying to be an Alexander Payne movie or something. I mean, look. I suggested in my piece that Alexander Payne would be a director, that Melissa McCarthy would be well advised to, to consider working with because he's a good, smart, incredibly uh, brilliant. He can make a drama funny and he can make uh, a comedy a drama and, he, and, and make it real. He's incredible at that. This was badly written and ineffectively directed and the characters were not carefully drawn. I know what you're getting at. You're getting at they were trying to dig deeper, but there was some kind of central awkwardness in herself as this character, Tammy, who is portrayed as incredibly stupid, dumb, not educated, not capable, a slob, not capable of being a, a, an effective employee or wife or child or anything. She was such a complete mess. And yet, you know, we're asked to like her. And, and Melissa McCarthy supplies a great deal of likability. Well, I don't know about that. The See, problem is in the writing. That's where I would stop you. I mean, I think the likability factor is where it's questionable. I mean, in Alexander Payne's movies, which, you know, it's easy to draw that comparison mainly because it's a road trip in the Midwest. It's Nebraska it's, with it's, an alcoholic grandpa parent. Exactly. Parent. Which actually is a pretty amazing elevator pitch if it were an, an indie. But, but look, it's there, there's something unoriginal about most comedy formulas in Hollywood now, even if they work. When I saw certain moments in this movie, I felt like even though it was underwritten 
It's not as funny as it should be. The the weird romance that she has with Mark Duplass is, doesn't make any Disaster. sense. It's completely... The movie doesn't work, but it's in the right direction because I'm looking at comedies that are made completely outside of this terrain. You know, something like Obvious Child, which is, you know, that quote-unquote abortion comedy that's doing so well in limited release. Or Dear White People, which was a hit at Sundance's great satire of those are indie movies a bona fide groundbreaking genre bending complete progress is being made on both of those fronts by young exciting uh, innovative filmmakers and the actors who who are in them i think the what we're really skirting around here is that just because you're a big movie star doesn't mean that you know how to write and direct um, you know with your husband and that's right and that, but it does you can glean from this movie a certain kind of sensibility that they want to push against it they want to do something different and you're right somebody like Miss Melissa McCarthy if she wants to weld her influence she should get Alexander Payne to do the big studio movie that she wants that make happen you know or the I mean? independent Fox Searchlight movie I mean that would be fine right I, I, I would love to see that but that's me that's me. I'm I'm the person who always wants the indie version, the smart indie version of a dumb movie. Right. Well, I mean, we're always hoping for this kind of ideal to some degree. And in general, those movies don't seem to work out too well. I mean, it's interesting to see <laughs> Mark Duplass in this movie. I mean, the Duplass brothers, uh, made, you know. I wish he'd said no. I just wish he had just, you know, just. Money does all kinds of things in that town, apparently. But Mark and his brother Jay made two studio comedies, Cyrus and Jeff Who Lives at Home. Cyrus did okay. Jeff Who Lives at Home did not. Cyrus did fine. It did fine. It was a smaller project. And Jeff uh, That Lives at Home was, was a disappointment for sure. And now uh, they're doing an HBO show. So, I mean, those guys tried to do something different in this arena. They they realized, I think, that it's just not designed in that way. And so, in, in some sense, I think this is a cautionary tale that if you get to a certain degree of success where you have that, that autonomy, it doesn't mean that you want to bend the system to, you know, to your will. It's more like, well, now I have this brand, so I should go somewhere where people are going to embrace it. But Eric, I think that's the problem. I, I, I mean, we, we may be disagreeing on the terminology that we're using, but we may be agreeing in, in effect. But in it, it, what, what we're seeing here is caution, not swinging for the fences. This, she's staying inside, safely inside, the formulas that have worked so far for her character um, in, in movies and not breaking out of that. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy about. Well, I'm glad that we're both trying to push for better movies anyway. <laughs> I mean, I think that, uh, you know, this, this gives us a good segue into the other topic that we want to touch on this week, which is Steve James' terrific, I think, documentary about Roger Ebert, Life Itself. You know, Roger Ebert sort of excelled at, when he was really on it about pushing for better movies and, and sort of singling out movies that were worthy of discussion, whether or not they had, you know, studio marketing dollars behind them. The movie itself is a little bit different in terms of its focus. I mean, it's, it's not just about kind of that advocacy so much as this person's personal investment in it, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I, the movie is commendable in all sorts of different ways, and it's fascinating because it brings us in a very short period of time right up against our own grief. If we cared about Roger Ebert, if we loved Roger Ebert, if, if Roger Ebert was someone that mattered to us, as he as he did to many 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 people, and I I think there's so many elements of emotion that bring out a, a lot of emotion. Um, 
the love story with Chaz Ebert, the extraordinary bravery that he exhibited at the end of his life, which this movie, not realizing that, that Steve James did not realize, the guy who had been, uh, you know, supported early on by Roger uh, for Hoop Dreams back, back at Sundance, uh, low these many years ago, um, Steve did not realize how much um, Roger was close to the end of his life. And so he ended up chronicling that period right up to the end, um, except for the last few days. So I think, I think it's, it's commendable and so well done in many ways, but it does have this sort of awkward discomfort that comes with the lens being right up close against, uh, you know, the rather uh, disturbing elements of Roger's uh, existence at that time with part of his face removed and part of his jaw removed. There was this remarkable degree of commitment that resulted from, you know, the situation that he was in and his willingness to, to push beyond that because of how how difficult he, you know, his, his physical situation was. I mean, the movie does not sugarcoat that. I don't think that it's exploiting his discomfort so much as highlighting the, the degree to which he wanted to remain active no matter what was going to push back and, and prohibit him from doing that. And I think it's fascinating in the context of our previous discussion because if, if you think about what Ebert did for criticism, I think he made it personal in a way that only maybe Pauline Kael was able to do beforehand, but not in a way that spoke to this much larger audience. And uh, the movie, to some degree, tracks what it takes to be that kind of person, to to sort of inject your personality into the mainstream and your sensibilities along with it. And that, I think, is inspiring. You know, I, I go on YouTube sometimes and I look at old episodes of that show, and one of the ones that really stands out to me is, is uh, My Dinner with Andre, which is absolutely worth checking out because the way that they sort of got excited about championing this movie, because they were into it, and everybody else should be too, was something that more people should do. The enthusiasm is there, but maybe not the advocacy in the same way. I loved Roger's determination to make this whole process transparent, and I admired him for that. And a lot of that had to do with his, and this is part of what the movie reveals, his terribly upset when Siskel died on him without you know, ever really being honest about how bad his illness, his cancer was, or that he was terminal, or... Or that he was dying, and and um, finally somebody leaked it to to Roger and Jazz that they better check out, you know, go see him, or they were gonna miss it. So he was more uh, of an advocate of, of transparency as a result of that. But but he also just didn't want to ever give up his 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 own um, avocation of criticism. He just didn't want to give it up. And I admire him so much for the. New, new model that he provided, the way that he took to the internet, the way that he used a different kind of voice, his writing voice, when he couldn't be on TV anymore, and communicated directly with, with, his, with his readers. And I'm also sort of moved and inspired by the way that Chaz uh, has taken RogerEbert.com and carried it into the future, and, and it's, it's alive and well. It, although it is weird <laughs> when we get these sort of RogerEbert.com emails where it looks like Roger himself is like giving his own doc a thumbs up on email or something or on Twitter. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I suppose that if nobody else was responding warmly to this movie, it might be a more difficult situation for something like RogerEbert.com, which publishes film criticism now from many different 
uh, sources to, to do that. But there is something that seems intellectually honest only because the movie is actually quite strong. And, you know, I think that, that you know, validates what they're doing there. You know, RogerEbert.com, to some degree, is this sort of living memorial to what Ebert represented, but, it, but it's also trying to remain relevant. And I was thinking about that recently because somebody who listened to one of our recent episodes uh, left a comment asking about, uh, you know, whether we thought this was as good a year for movies as last year. And I thought it was an interesting question because, you know, Roger was somebody who always had a very particular reaction to every movie that people were talking about. And, and so it makes me wonder, you know, what would he have thought about Boyhood? What would he have thought about Snowpiercer? You know, and, and these, these questions come up because, you know, it's just increasingly hard to bring the marketplace for new movies into focus because there's just so much stuff out there. Now, That's true. There are very few people who, who galvanize as wide a swath of, of movie lovers as, as Ebert did. Um, it was interesting on uh, Charlie Rose, which I recommend people look up. It, it, you know, somebody said at Sundance when they showed the movie for the first time, you know, that it felt like we were all part of some kind of, you know, memorial service or, or, or you know, in a way, in a way. And, and, and it definitely did. Um, but um, I was listening to um, Chaz talk about her love story with Roger and and I have to say that is a very moving aspect of the film because they, you know, she changed him and improved his life immeasurably and was there for him at the end in a very moving way. And I was, I was, you know, moved to tears by that when she talked about it. But uh, more, more to what you were just saying, A.O. Scott, um, who, of course, was one of the people who tried to fill in at the end uh, for, for Siskel and Ebert without success, um, he uh, mentioned that he was teaching a film criticism class and that of all the pieces of writing that he, he you know, presented to his class, and this makes perfect sense to me, it was Ebert's writing that they responded to, and uh, even when the, they hadn't seen the films. And that's a testimony to the kind of engagement and accessibility and populism that he brought to his writing, more, more so than anyone else. Right. You know, when I see this movie and I see how remarkable Roger was able to sort of survive the, what, what he went through and also maintain his sensibilities and maintain his enthusiasm, I think I'm glad people are excited about Roger Ebert's writing. I wish they would stop trying to be him. Let's stop thinking about who the next Roger Ebert is and start pushing ahead to find our own ways of championing things. You know, before you know it, people are going to try to find their own versions of Chaz Ebert as well. And then, you know, the secret to film criticism is going to be fall in love and make sure that you have a supportive one. Oh, stop. <laughs> oh, stop. Now, here, here's what I will say, though. Um, I think he's a transitional figure in the sense that he figured out the internet as 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 a, you know and brought his uh, his chops, if you like, uh, and his his already pre-established brand, which was a huge leg up to a new you know to a new audience via the internet. And I think he's basically figured out what a lot of other people writing online have figured out that it's a it's a much more uh, level. Uh, here's what I say. Here's what you know. You react. We can t engage. We can talk. We we. It's not ivory tower. You know, throwing it all down to 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 the masses from on high, um, dictating you know what you should think in in the old manner. So so we're already there. He he's he simply you know was someone from the print side who managed to figure it out. 
I'm I'm much more curious what he would think about Boyhood than I am about the new Melissa McCarthy movie. I'll say that much. I would have loved to have read his Boyhood review. I and I miss him uh, in the in the same way. So let's dedicate this 4th of July episode to Roger Ebert and uh, Independence in general. We hope you guys check out some of the movies we talked about. Maybe less so Tammy now that you've heard us blab about it, but uh, certainly life itself. Something tells me our target audience was not running to Tammy anyway. Safe travels. Have a good holiday. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.